The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. I want to do what I did with the smaller group earlier this week and read you my favorite letter because I think the thing that that pushes me in everything, my why, my purpose, are embedded in the idea of service in care to others, meaning all of those, to self, to family, community, the society. And if you're not clearly in touch with just how unbelievable it feels to care for others, my favorite letter of several hundred thousand will hint. In the previous episode of Noggins and Neurons, sleep, vital for everyone, essential for survivors. Pete and I talked about sleep disorder statistics in stroke survivors, the effects of insomnia on behavior and emotions. We also talked about sleep stages and what occurs in the body during those stages, including dendrite formation and learning consolidation. We also talked about the effects of sedatives and prescription medications on sleep, as well as sleep hygiene strategies for people who have difficulty sleeping. It'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. You ready? Okay. Hey, Deb, it's Stella. How are you? Pete Levine. I'm great. How are you? What's new? Well, a walk and some yoga. Oh, no. What's every, new with you? Did you have a Every time snack? you do yoga, you get feisty. Do I? Yeah. This is a true story. Steve and I used to do talks together and he would do a half an hour and I'd do a half an hour and then he'd do 40 minutes. I'd do 45 minutes. We'd go back and forth. And and uh, at some point, the company that did the talks implemented this yoga thing they wanted us to do. They demanded that we do. It was play a video and the video would tell them how to do yoga. And as soon as the people did yoga, they got really feisty. Mm-hmm. They like were much more vocal and much more aggressive. And it's kind of interesting. Cool. Aggressive. You know, it, it clears your mind. And it's it's the I think it's the breathing that helps with cognition. Well, I know it's the breathing that helps with cognition because I, I did a little research and I found 
a study where they did yoga and modified yoga with older adult populations. And a surprise finding was improved cognition. And it's the the breathing because you're getting more oxygen to your brain. You know, the brain loves oxygen. It does. Oxygen and glucose and neurotransmitters Mm -hmm. and BDNF and yeah, Yeah. love stuff. So remember when we used to be allowed to be in public and I was, I went to, uh, So that's back in 1847. Back, in the, back a couple of years ago. So I was, <laughs> um, it was Halloween time and I went to the dance place where we were doing the swing dancing and some people chose to, to wear costumes and someone was a red blood cell. Wow. I, I thought that was really cool. So he was... R- was it a male? It was a male. Was mm-hmm. he? He was big and round in the middle. He had a box in the middle. That was probably the best he could do. And oh. yeah, so it was a little had- sick. Yeah, that's <laughs> funny. Yeah. Oh no. Yeah. Okay. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, today we're going to talk about, and this is kind of a harsh one, but what makes a good therapist? What makes a bad therapist? Maybe by extension, what makes a good clinician? Whether it's a nurse or a doctor or physician's mm-hmm. assistant or physical therapist assistant, whatever it is, are there common denominators among all those groups? Heck, are there common denominators between those groups and pilots and flight attendants and I don't people? Know, pe- people, exactly, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it might have uh, broader implications than just clinicians. Yeah, I like the topic though. And I think that at some point, this will be helpful to people who are selecting a therapist or a clinic to go to because you want to make sure that you have the right person that you're working with who is going to help you in many ways. And we will talk about those things tonight, today, whatever time it is. Whatever time it's about 8.57 right now. <laughs> tonight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the idea here, I think, is to discuss some of the things that maybe clinicians can do on their quest for excellence. And that's the thing about excellence. It's always a quest because as soon as you get there, you can always get better. So that's for the therapist. For the student, the same thing. You may be at the beginning of of the whole road ahead of you, but the road doesn't end once you get out of school. And in fact, one of the big things we'll probably end up talking about is how you stay up to date, how you are a lifelong learner. It's it's part of it's kind of part of the Hippocratic oath for all of us to make sure that you stay abreast of the latest stuff, but that also that you just are a learner generally and a teacher. And so as you pointed out, for survivors, it's probably pretty good to recognize somebody who's good at their job versus somebody who's not good at their job. Mm-hmm. And we've all seen people, whether they're a pilot or a doctor or an electrician or a plumber, and you just end up wondering, how do they get in this business? Why are they staying in this business? You ever meet a therapist like that? Like, what are you doing here? Yeah. I have. And and I've also worked in places where I've wondered how people keep their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you just said something that made me have a little story. I got a couple of stories. I got a bunch of stories yeah. about bad therapists. Well, we probably all have a bunch of those. Yeah. And and that's the thing is like, I don't want to say, you know, because we're going to talk about this stuff that I'm a perfect clinician, because trust me, I'm not. And I'm going to give you a Mia Copa right now. This is a story, a true story about me and how I screwed up. Okay. okay? You ready? Okay. Here we go. Ready. Roll up my sleeves. Okay. Wait, I got to turn the lights on. I got to turn the lights on. There you go. Um, it happened years ago and I was in skilled nursing. Okay. And I had a double amputee and I was transferring them from the wheelchair to their bed and got them on uh, the sliding board. 
So that that was positioned right. The angle was right. Everything was right according to the textbook. And a PT walked by the room and she kind of did that thing where she goes by the room and her head goes backwards so she can see what's going on. And she stops and she sticks her head in the door and she says, lower the bed. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, so I'm going against gravity like a dummy. I was like, oh, God, how can well, I Pete, do that? I know what gravity is, I swear. <laughs> I don't, there's there's a lot to think about at work. And there's, no, there's a lot to think about with the slide board transfer, and especially when somebody has both legs amputated. So I have a slide board story. Go. I, um, I was a COTA and I was doing my OT field work. So I had some experience, not like I didn't have experience, but I had uh, my first spinal cord patient that I was working with. And I learned the importance of having the one armrest on the wheelchair when you're using that slide board to transfer. Yeah, that's probably a pretty good thing to remember. Mm -hmm. It was. I was happy that she uh, had some sitting balance. (laughs) You know, it didn't go too bad, but kind of it scared me inside of myself. So you were a CODA and a CODA is a certified occupational therapy assistant. Is yes. that right? Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'll never get it right, but I did. Um, <laughs> and then you became an OT. Mm-hmm. And uh, how long have you been in the OT, OTA profession total? Since 2001. So 20 years. You know, it's crazy. I've been PTA longer than you've been a Oh, how about that? Dakota, Anna. But you've made a lot more progress. I just sat right where I was and <laughs> stayed where I was. I don't know about that. Yeah. We have very different career paths. You know, um, yeah, we do. We do. <laughs> I still don't know what mine is, but that's okay. Um, you know, when I'm out, do you ever do this and you see somebody who's really good at their job? Maybe somebody you're booking a flight with somebody or somebody at work and you're like, God, you're good at your job. Mm-hmm. This took a lot of, I can tell you are good at your job. Mm-hmm. And I think that should be acknowledged too. And there are really good therapists out there that do all the right things. So there are, and everybody's learning and nobody's perfect. And I don't know about you, but I think the person who tries and puts that effort forth and you can see the change in them over time, that's where I, I give that person respect and I, I appreciate that person. And I like to have that person on my team. Yeah. So that's the most improved player. That yeah, kind of I guess deal? it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We had so, a student like that recently did and you? I, I wasn't real knowledgeable about what happened, but every professor in our program said, my God, you see how good he got? He used to be afraid and he kept second and he just like turned some weird corner and it, he was there. Hmm. It happens. Well, it does happen. And I think that was me. Fear has run a lot of my life. And then you just kind of get sick of that and decide that that's not going to happen anymore. And that's what I did. But I know, you know, I think that as, as you go through life, hopefully you mature. And that happens as a therapist too. So you kind of learn from people. And I, I remember a time when I was a newer OT. And I just remember working with a group of people who they were just always complaining about the patients and how the patients were whatever they were doing. They just, you know, there was always some kind of a complaint. And at the time I was following Deepak Chopra and I really appreciated him. And I remember hearing him say something about everybody's doing the best they can from the level of awareness that they're at. And I let that sink in. It was kind of hard for a little bit, hard for me to understand it. But as I let that sink in, I realized that that was me too. And I decided to just like everybody, like from the moment, just 
it's always a clean slate. And it changed the way I did my practice. And I remember we had this um, this lady, I can't remember her name. She had some mental health challenges and she did some really interesting things like ordering pizzas for the whole building at midnight. But a lot of times she would be nasty to people. Was this a clinician or? No, this is a patient that came patient. to us. Okay. And I just was always nice to her. And she would always come into the clinic in the afternoon and I was always eating a snack and I would always offer her my snack. And one day she said, why are you nice to me? And I said, well, why wouldn't I be? And she said, because I'm not always nice to you. And I said, well, that doesn't mean I can't be nice back to you. And she just, we just kind of formed a bond and she would talk to me about how she was nasty to other people. And I just would ask her, well, why are you? <laughs> and she said, it's because it's fun. It's <laughs> really said, fun. I don't know. And she said, I don't know. I said, you know, you don't, you don't have to be. It's a choice. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a choice. And mm-hmm. so where do we want to start with all of this? I want to start out with a quote from Leo Tolstoy's 1877 novel, Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I've translated it into therapy. All good therapists are good in a similar way. All bad ones are bad in their own way. And I do want to tell a couple of stories that I got okay. about therapists that maybe weren't the best. So the first one is PT I worked with said to a patient, if you walk with me, I'll bring you outside. You can have your cigarette. And he said, I don't have a cigarette. She said, I'll give you a cigarette and we'll walk outside and you'll be able to smoke it. Hmm. Now, you know, the guy smoked. She wasn't going to stop him from smoking, no. but he didn't have a cigarette and she did. Yeah. Hmm. So that was- That's a little that, puzzling right there. But I still liked the therapist. Don't get me wrong. Okay. But uh, but that was, that was a little puzzling. Mm-hmm. Um, in clinical research, we had a clinician meets a, uh, a stroke survivor in our little waiting room. And the clinician starts to walk away and says, go ahead and have a seat. And the stroke survivor had a small base quad cane. Go ahead and have a seat and kind of directs her towards these chairs that didn't have armrests. The woman goes to sit down, misses the chair, breaks her hip, and they take her right to the hospital. So, you know, but I think she had been in orthopedics prior to coming into research and didn't know enough about survivors. So in a situation like that, do you ever think about the person who did the training or helping people to understand the difference? Well, I I was the lab Uh, co-director. Maybe this reflects on me. So we probably should have made sure that her chops, she was pretty young, her chops were enough to understand that when somebody just walked down a 300 foot hallway, probably longer than that, came down an elevator and walked down another long hallway, by the time they got to us, they were exhausted. So um, make sure they put their butt in the chair and they go down slowly. I know when I started working with the the PT that they hired for the weekends to work with me in early mobility, there were times when I would just ask a question and she she would say, how did you know to ask that? I don't know. It's because I've done this for so long that you just like, it's just how your brain starts to work when you do something for a while. So there's the value of that experience that you have. I did ask my wife what she thought made a bad therapist. Oh, she's a PT. Mm-hmm. And she says, uh, when they have them sitting in their wheelchair and having them do total knee extensions, 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's where you just kick your foot forward so your knee's straight and then back to the floor. And then they have them march in place, maybe with a couple of cuff weights, and then they have them walk. And the next patient comes in and they have do total knee extensions. They march in place, maybe with a couple of cuff weights, and then they have them walk. And the next patient comes in, they do the same thing over and over and over again. That's probably a pretty bad sign. Cookie cutter. Little cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess then the same would be true for the occupational therapist who pushes the person up to the table, puts them in front of the arm bike or in front of that stupid range of motion arc that should not be in any clinic, maybe gives them a bar to do some exercises. And there's no real individualized therapy. Okay. I think we've trashed some people. We've trashed some people. So um, maybe we can learn a thing or two and maybe help a, a person or two. So how do you want to work this? I think we should talk about signs of excellence. And then at some point, maybe we can talk about the benefits of self-reflection and looking at oneself and how to how to grow and how to just acknowledge that we are always learning and maybe be curious. Ask significant questions. Ooh, let's talk about significant questions. So I think about two things. What do you think about? One, asking significant questions of the patient, of colleagues, but also asking significant questions that may require going to a book or or another resource. That is, yes, you want to talk to the patient. There's a lot of information there. Colleagues, there's a lot of information there. But how does X treatment fit with Y treatment? And that may be asking those questions of yourself. So you're asking everybody questions, but make sure that they're important questions. Head you right into the right direction. What do you do with the answers? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think we can just stop at the question because sometimes the answers require that we do something different from what we thought we were going to do. Hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, why would you ask the question? Mm-hmm. If you knew the answer, what's the point? Exactly. How about this one? Be a good listener. What does that mean? You have to know what the patient is really concerned about. Otherwise, you can't diagnose, you can't treat. And it's a tough environment because you're under such pressure, in rehab at least, to be productive and you know, every second of your time is taken up, usually more than all the time you have. But it's worthwhile to take the time to listen to the patient. Um, bill it under patient education if you have to. What do you do when you listen to the patient and you try to advocate for that person with the medical professional, like the physician, and then they just roll their eyes at you? Um, hmm. Yeah, that's like patient advocacy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it would be under the broad category of being a good listener, but um, I think that that would be important. You know, it seems to me like the therapist may be with the patient for 45 minutes. The doctor may be with them if they're lucky, 15 minutes. So, you know, a lot of times the therapist gets a lot more information, and maybe you can use that to leverage to be a patient advocate. I do think it has to do with listening. And I think it has to do with our attitudes towards the patients as well. And so I have a story. We had a a woman who was experiencing some significant anxiety and she had a heart attack and she had had open heart surgery. And some people were having a, a challenging time getting her to participate. And I remember talking to her and finding out that she was a caregiver for her her mom who and she was worried about both of them losing their houses it was a pretty big deal and i know that some people were we were getting the eye roll from some people and um 
her doctor did not want to address the anxiety. And why? I just don't understand. If somebody needs a temporary help for anxiety, which is common following open heart surgery and common when you're worried about your home and your mom's home and, and your mom, you know, all these things. And then come to find out that another therapist who worked per diem at our facility was also working with the mother. So it, it was almost like that the story had to be verified by another clinician before people started to listen and really help this woman. And that I felt that was a little unfortunate because social work should have been involved much sooner than they did get involved. Yeah. Sorry, real life stories. Yeah. Yeah. Social workers, a lot of the time, first of all, in grand rounds, when you go to a, a care plan meeting, I did an affiliation in a burn intensive care unit, St. Barnabas in New Jersey. It was the biggest, the biggest one in New Jersey. And uh, boy, the social workers had the best stories. You know, if if, if it involves fire, there's often alcohol involved or mm-hmm. arson. There's always these big dramatic things. But um, I've also seen social workers that clearly shouldn't have been social workers. Mm-hmm. They were too busy during the care plan meeting on their phone, surfing the web or something. So yeah. um, so there's, there's good and bad. And it's a choice about what you want to be. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that that thing, you know, the woman is a caregiver. So her big responsibility, even as she's lying with a huge scar across her sternum and sutures everywhere and a pillow so that when she coughs, she doesn't blow her chest open. She's worried about a mom. Mm-hmm. If, if that doesn't give you a right to be anxious, tell me what does. Yeah. Wow. This is getting depressing. I know. Let's ramp it up a little bit. All right. Here's one. A good clinician demonstrates lifelong learning. Mm, Let's talk about that one. So you and I, we have a certain number of continuing education courses that we have to take uh, credits that we have to take. And um, and that's dictated by our state boards. Uh, but that doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be just clinical courses. It could be reading a book about people at the end of their life. Um, my wife likes these shows about people that are um, in end stages of life. And I, she's not doing it for morbid reasons. She just finds it interesting. She's a weird, weird person. This is a true story. So we live in Cincinnati and some of our first friends here was the Finnish community. There's a, a few Finns. They get around, you know, Apparently. almost almost always in America, the woman is Finnish and the man is American. I've only seen that flipped one time out of all the people I met that are Finnish here in the States. Hmm. So it's something about the adventurousness of Finnish women, I guess. But she had a friend who was probably about 85 and Isla was probably about 42. And her friend said to me when Isla wasn't around, she is the only young person that doesn't treat me like an old person. I mean, isn't that, that's great. And she, she works in skilled nursing. I mean, there's something about the way we treat old people. that's pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty bad. And I've been guilty of it as well. So, so. I like to watch shows about near, about people who've had near-death experiences, and I've had some patients who've had those. I had one guy who told me that he came back. He said, you know, you have a choice. And he said, I made the choice to come back because he was helping to raise his grandson. It kind of it helps me to resolve my fears about death, which I do think if you work, depending on where you work, if you're faced with it a lot, it can... Um, it can kind of mess with you. And I think it's important as a therapist to make some peace with it because some of our people that we work with are facing the end of life. And I think that if it's great if we can help with that and at, at the least not get in the way of it. Yeah, absolutely. So if you work in skilled nursing and you don't like old people, that's not a good idea. If you're 
if you're working in hospice and you don't like death, eh, it's not a good idea. But no. usually people find their niche. Yeah. So if you're interested, like it could be a book. I'm trying to think of this show that my wife was watching about, I think it was on, it was an Amazon show. Okay. And it was about older couples around the world. And they went to India, they did one in the States, mm-hmm. they did them in, in Asia, everywhere, and how these different older couples got along and how they dealt with each other. So it could be a book, it could be a movie. A great book about brain injury is The Diving Bell and the Butterfly about a guy. Have you seen that one? No, it's a movie. Too, I don't know why I have it because I've been told about it so many times. So the guy has locked in syndrome mm. and that means that nothing, he cannot move anything except his eyes. So he's on a feeding tube. He's getting aid to breathe. The only thing he can do is move his eyes and a speech therapist gets with him. He's French. They're in France. And he writes the entire novel using his eyes to let her pick out the letters and it becomes a best-selling book, and then it becomes a major motion picture. So if you want to see a good uh, movie about perseverance um, after a brain injury, that's a really good one. I had a friend who had a brain injury, which is how I ended up becoming an occupational therapy person. And he communicated with his hand, you would say the letters, and he would just kind of move his arm to let you know which letter he wanted. And uh, he, he was younger. He was a state trooper and um, he was funny. He was funny. I used to bring my kids and we go visit him in the nursing home. And one of my, my oldest son, he liked to do things like pull buttons, push buttons, and then the nurses would get upset and that made my friend laugh. So it was all worth it. <laughs> Is this the son that was a that's a drummer? Both sons were drummers. Oh, they both. Wow. Yeah. And it, wasn't there this period where you didn't get much sleep? You said in the last episode that I think I've found it is. <laughs> I'm a pretty good scientist. I think I've done my due diligence. It was the drums. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Okay. Here's the next thing that somebody who is a clinician can do to be a better clinician is be observant. What are we observing for? So this is one that students have problems with. It's almost like they put aside everything they've learned up until they got to school and they don't even think about that. So, you know, you throw a bunch of toys around. I, I think I told you about this. This, this uh, student was taking a test and we threw down a, a cat, a fake cat, just to see how they would deal with the fake cat. And um, they didn't deal with it. They didn't mention it. They didn't talk about it. They didn't move it out of the way of the walker. They didn't do anything. It's almost like, yeah. So those kinds of things, just being observant about the little things can really help. And I'll tell you a quick story. I was in skilled nursing and there was this patient that we had and the speech therapist came into a care plan meeting and we started talking about this patient and he said, can we do something about his breath? And everybody in the room just went, it's terrible. We got to do something. You're absolutely right. It's horrible. I can barely stand. Nobody said anything. Mm -hmm. Now, I wish I had said something, but that's a little observing thing. And maybe we can't, maybe it's an indication of something sickness or maybe he has bad teeth. Maybe there's something we can do for him. Maybe there's something we can do for us. Mm-hmm. Those kinds of facial expressions. Or how about this one? The guy is perfectly groomed every day. And one day he comes down in the hallway and maybe in his wheelchair and his hair is all over the place. Ooh. That's something you should ask about. Now, a student might say, I don't want to embarrass him. Maybe he's having a bad day. I like this topic, Pete, because I think that students are afraid or even newer clinicians, 
they're so busy being very proper that it's it's kind of hard to find the balance of just being yourself. But it's a good day when you enter that phase and you can just say, can we do something about his breath? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A facial expression that shows pain. I mean, I've seen therapists ignore the look of pain on somebody's face. And it's like, what do you want? Do you want them to scream? Well, that, you know, look at their face. Look at how they smell. Look at their hair. Whatever you got, use it. Be observant. Yeah. Well, that whole pain thing. So I do think that's one thing that students tend to overemphasize. You sure this doesn't hurt? Are you sure you're not in any pain? I'm not hurting you. So, okay, let that go and watch the facial expressions. Pay attention. But I feel like sometimes you can beat a dead horse with that stuff and push people into saying, yeah, it hurts. I don't want to do this. Well, that's not the goal either. Yeah, it's a fine line. It is a fine line. And they maybe have a little trepidation expressing the pain to you Mm -hmm. because they think maybe it's necessary or something. Yeah. And everybody's different about pain. Some people think you're right. Some people think pain is necessary and other people have a very low tolerance for pain. But it almost doesn't matter because if it's pain, it's pain and and, uh, you got to deal with it. Acknowledge it and help them. All right. Here's another one. A good clinician communicates well with patients. How does that happen? Well, it can be a challenge. Um, Every patient is different. Where I work now, there's a lot of people that struggle with what I would call the King's English. And so, for instance, electrical stimulation, they might say, give me the stints. For traction, they'll say, I want the extraction. It's like, it's a dentist. Let's do the extracted. (laughs) What I found is best when you communicate with somebody is to keep it simple. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very difficult to make things simple. It takes a lot of work on the the side of the person giving the message. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of editing. So yeah. It does. What do you think about standing over a person versus sitting down and looking them in the eye? Yeah, you've mentioned this one before. Mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's absolutely necessary. Where I work, a lot of people are on on mats. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a vulnerable position. I, I hate at the dentist that you're lying down. You know, it's just, you know, it's mm-hmm. so passive. It is. I guess um, it's a good thing that the dentist is sitting down, but still. <laughs> um the other thing that I think is really important is giving people enough time to respond. So remembering, if you're working with the older adult population, remembering they may be hard of hearing. And if you have a mask on, they may not understand what you're saying. If somebody has some dementia, and then they had a stroke on top of that, and their cognition is foggy on top of the dementia, they might need more time to respond. And I, I will say that is a um, that was a big turning point for me when I read that book. And she talked about how she appreciated anyone who came into her room and who gave her time to process what they had just said to her so that she could try to formulate a response. Because she said she felt like it was, she knew that she knew this information, but she had to find the right place for it, pull it out. And sometimes it can be frustrating, I think, for, for the patient if we are in such a hurry that we don't give them an opportunity to, to try to find the answer or to even tell us what they would like to say. Yeah, boy. Uh, finishing people's sentences is one of my pet peeves with people that are aphasic or dysphagic. You know, they'll, they'll get it out. Mm-hmm. And if you don't give them time, then it's counter to what you should be doing, which is allowing them to speak because that's what they need help with. And just because mm-hmm. you're an OT doesn't 
doesn't mean you can't work on that or a PT. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think we get mixed up about time. You know, we think we have to get all of these things in in therapy, but if the person takes longer to do something now, if we work with them at their pace, that they will get better and improve, increase their pace. Yeah. Although the time pressures are intense. They are. Yep. Um, I was a little bit of a rebel. Yeah. Well, you do ride motorcycles. Yeah, <laughs> I do. <laughs> get your motor running. Head out on the highway. <laughs> okay. This one is related to communicates well with patients. So a good clinician will simplify complex issues for the listener. Mm. And it doesn't say that if it, the listener is the patient or the caregiver or a colleague. This one I like a lot because I hate complexity. It drives me nuts. Whether it's software or it's a book or it's an idea, just don't bore us. Get to the chorus. Get it out. And it takes work on the front end to make things simple. It takes editing. It's easy for me to explain something in a way that I understand, but that's not what I'm trying to do. I understand it. So I can just let any words come out of my mouth and blah, 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 blah lots of words and blah, 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 complexity, complexity, complexity. And, and it takes work on the part of the person saying the message, especially when people are aphasic or they, they've had heart surgery and they're in pain and they're worried about their mom. And mm-hmm. what's that beeping coming out of the machine? Am I dying? And a million other things. You got to make it simple and simplifying this stuff, whether even if it's a complex idea like stroke mm-hmm. or whatever it is, or something having to do with diet so they don't have another stroke, things can be made simple, but it's work, you know, and I think it's worthwhile work. And I think that's what they're getting at. Communicates yeah. well with patients, simplifies complex issues for the listener, whoever they are. Well, I would like to say that you're naturally good at it, but I sense that maybe you're not. Maybe it's from the years of presenting and writing. Yeah, I think that helps. The other thing is, and this gets a little personal, but um, I think I've probably told you this. I I was adopted. Mm -hmm. So my mom was very bright, graduated from college when she was 19. She, She was ill a lot as a child. And so she was homeschooled and she just kept skipping grades. And she went to Temple University back when women from South Philly didn't go to university at all. And uh, and then she became a, a code breaker during the Cold War. She worked at Fort Myer, which is across the street from a house I lived in in Arlington, Virginia, years later. So that was kind of cool. Yeah. And, and then my dad went to Brown. He was a trained by IBM as a systems analyst. Um, He was in the Navy uh, enlisted when he was 17 because World War II and uh, every kid was going in lying about their age. He went in, never left the country, ended up in San Diego, but caught a disease there that made him, we think, not be able to have kids. Mm. So I was adopted. My two sisters were adopted. My oldest sister's freaking smart too. Yeah. I've told you, she's the one who had the brain injury. She's mm-hmm. still smarter mm-hmm. than me. It pisses me off. Anyway, my problems. But um, but I used to just sit there at dinner time, going, what the heck are these people talking about? I have no idea. And then I would go in my room and I would think about it and take me a while. And I kind of put it together in a way that made sense to me. That meant I had to make it simple for me. And I did the same thing in clinical research. I'd shut up, listen to everybody. And then I'd go back at the internet makes it a lot easier. You can look everything up and now you piece it together. Now, how would I explain it to me? And now it gets real simple. It's just building blocks, make every story simple and then put them together in a simple way. But thank you. I appreciate the compliment. Well, I think you're welcome. And I think you just mentioned something very important. It's the listening piece and then the contemplation afterwards. 
Yeah. As a kid, I used to have this look on my face. They, they used to say I looked like I was catching flies. My mouth was just like, <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> yeah, it stopped being so complicated. Well, okay, I'm glad th- that you were thinking because my, uh, there was no, I just was always lost for the <laughs> longest time. I was lost until I went to OTA school and I thought, oh my God, stuff makes sense to me now. How did this happen? You were lost and then you got found. Yeah. All right. I got another one that'll help you be a good clinician or know if, you know, in all these, we could flip these and say, if you're a survivor, do you feel like the the therapist is observant? Do you think that they communicate well? Are they simplifying things? Do you understand what the heck they're saying? If they are explaining something and they they explain it and you go, well, I don't understand that. Do they have another way of doing it? Are they willing to work with you? Here's another one that will help you determine whether somebody's a good clinician or help you be a better clinician, they know their limits and when to ask for help. This mm-hmm. is one that you talk about a lot. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know everything, but you do need to know when to ask for help. For example, when you're transferring that patient and they freeze in the middle of the transfer because they're having a seizure, you have to be able to recognize that and call for help from the medical staff. Yeah. What were we talking about the other day where we were talking about how you should be willing to ask questions? Oh, I think it had to do with Dr. Teresa A. Jones. And she was talking about oh, yeah. humility and having the, the courage to, to ask the questions. Well, how do you feel about the flip side of that? where the environment that you're in needs to foster that safe space where where people feel safe to ask those questions, which can be tough in a rehab setting. I'm just saying, I might've worked in one of those. Sounds like you did. Yeah, I did. You know, I, I was thinking about it today when we were preparing for this. So I had, I've had quite a varied career and I've worked in all levels of care. And my best job was when I was a float therapist for the system that I worked for. I, I worked in every level of care. I met so many OTs and PTs who taught me just a ton of stuff. Plus they thought that I was really smart. So I just went, well, if they think I'm smart, maybe I should act smart. So I tried to do my best. And then, so when you, when you have jobs like that and you get patients from around your city, many different physicians, different types of procedures and ways things are done, um, you think differently than the person who has only worked at one place for their entire career. And I kind of had some I had some therapists try to throw me under the bus to my boss for some things. And I was just like, I'm just asking the right questions here because I've seen multiple things that cause me to ask these questions. And I do know what I'm doing and I want to know that I'm doing it correctly so that I don't injure the person. So, you know, I I guess you have to have a little confidence and a little understanding of where people are from. But I think a sign of maturity is being comfortable with people asking you questions and you not knowing the answer and you'll find them out. You'll find the answer out together. Yeah, it's helpful when you have good people on your mm-hmm. on your team. It's helpful when you have people who say, oh, that's a really good question. I never thought of that. How about this one? Confidence tempered with humility. Mm. Humility was the word that Teresa Jones kept using. She's in uh, basic animal research. Mm-hmm. The humility to ask questions, the humility to be able to collaborate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It helps everybody. I mean, you know, you can be an expert in your field, but... Uh, it's all about whether or not you can work with people. And mm-hmm. if you're not humble, it's going to be difficult to work with folks. Yeah. How about this one, Pete? How about patience? You mean not like the people, but- I mean, having... like with a C-E on the end. Patience. Yeah. 
with your career, with yourself, with other people, with patience, being patient with patience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I would say the thing that gets in the way mostly is this crazy push for productivity. It's hard to be patient when you're, you know, you don't even have time to go to the bathroom. Yeah. It's not a good situation. But anyway, what do you think about patience? Well, I think it's important. And I think that once you start learning how to have some of that, it changes your practice. But I think it, it kind of goes along with time. I've figured out that I always have enough time. I have the time that I need. And as long as I remember that, then I can I can do my job better and have enough patience with others, with myself, with, with whatever's happening with the process. But when I start to feel like I don't have enough time, then there's anxiety. People, people make mistakes when they try to rush through things. I think if you feel rushed, you bring that energy into your work with the patient that you're working with. And I don't think anybody shows up as their best when it's like that. That's true. One of the things that comes up with a lot of recommendations for new clinicians or even evolving, ever evolving clinicians is the idea of being empathetic. Mm -hmm. You know, Brene Brown says that empathy is a skill that we can learn. Okay, because I want a tangent. Okay, tangent. Because if it's learnable, then what about people who have had a brain injury and the empathy has been knocked out? Can they relearn empathy? And I found some encouraging stuff online to suggest that maybe they can. So this is a tangent in that we're not talking about clinicians, but maybe this work that these folks did will tell us something about developing our own empathy. Maybe it's a muscle that needs to be worked on. Mm. So this was presented at 2018 ACRM, American College of Rehabilitation Medicine. um, And it was a talk called Empathetic Responses to Effective Film Clips Following Brain Injury. By the way, a quick message. I am speaking at this year's American College of Rehabilitation Medicine. So it's all uh, virtual. You don't even have to go there. And if you're going and you're virtually going there, you should come to my talk. It's called Recovery from Brain Injury, the Nexus of Neuroscience and Neuro Rehab. Be there or be square. So anyway, so these two, both PhDs, Don Newman and Barbara Zupan, what they did was they played movie clips for people with brain injury and a control group, people that were healthy. And they asked the participants how each character in the clip felt. What were they feeling? The controls had an empathetic response 79% of the time. That is that they recognized what was being acted on the screen, but they were surprised to find out that the TBI group also did pretty well, about 67% of the time. So it's 97% versus 67, but still, you know, you can have a brain injury that hits the frontal lobe and it's really hard to interpret what other people's emotions are. And that's what empathy is all about. So they found that when the people with traumatic brain injury accurately identified the emotion, happy, sad, angry, upset, whatever it was, that their ability to empathize was much stronger than when they misidentified the emotion. So the neuroplastic model here seems to be work on having them recognize the emotion, and that will help them be more empathetic. 
So there were some other things that they found out. They found that when the people with TBI accurately identified the emotion, happy, sad, angry, their ability to empathize was much stronger than when they misidentified the emotion. So they also found out that the people with TBI were better at recognizing happy emotions than sadness or Hmm. fearfulness. That's interesting. So there may be a neuroplastic model. And this is what I think it is and what they were suggesting it is. First, test the survivor's ability to evaluate emotions. There's going to be two tests in the show notes. One is a video and they show different faces and then the survivor would have to figure out what emotion they were expressing because if they can figure out the emotion they were expressing, they'll be more empathetic. And if you do that repetitively, well, we all know what repetitive practice does. Second, The clinicians should discuss with the patient ways of responding empathetically to the loved ones as a sort of fake it till you make it kinds of concept. So, okay, you recognize they're afraid. What would be appropriate here? Oh, say, don't be afraid. Okay, that's a good start. And you work on that kind of thing. And a family member should be involved and they can talk about something emotional and use that as a way to do repetitive practice. Third, the family members can be directed to be more explicit about their emotions, very direct about their emotions and what they would like from the person with the TBI or the stroke or whatever, the acquired brain injury to do so that everybody's on the same page. Yes, I'm feeling this. You're not recognizing it. See my face. This is something good or something bad. Mm -hmm. And that way they get repetitive practice at home. It's sort of forced use like we would do at home. So is this something that a psychologist is involved in? Is it is a part of a team? I would just like a program. Yeah. Would be beneficial for everybody. Yeah, maybe. Maybe maybe I should write this book. Maybe you should write this book. The neuroplastic model of reestablishing empathy after brain injury. And maybe it's more like a couple of chapters. Oh well. Well, a nice little handbook. Not so overwhelming. A blog entry about it. Yeah. Yeah, a handbook. That's a good idea. Colorful pictures. Exactly. Yeah. I know I have seen some therapists and some of the Facebook groups that I'm in, they they mention that neuropsych is involved. I've never had that experience. And I think that it would help us as OTs and PTs because it, it can be challenging to work with somebody who has a brain injury, even if you understand the Rancho Los Amigos levels. What other things do you think we should talk about that are involved with, you know, being open-minded, a broad perspective? being willing to be a mentee and a mentor. Mm -hmm. I think just being teachable, no matter what your role is, being teachable and remembering what it might feel like to be the person who's learning. The other thing too, though, is being bold enough to have the hard conversations because sometimes people need to be told the truth if they're not getting it, but it needs to be done in a kind way. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I found here on the clinician website is they recommend having superb organizational skills. The therapist should. Well, it certainly helps everybody get through the day. Yeah, that I, I have to say, as somebody who's not particularly organized, that was definitely an Achilles heel for me. But I used to be amazed at, you know, therapists that would walk around with a clipboard and they would have everything highlighted and, and everything was right where it should be in there. Yeah. You know, I had a clipboard, Pete, and you could open it up and you would find scissors. You would find little charts in there about oxygen percentages and just a wide variety of telephone numbers of different units in the hospital. Anything you needed, pretty much, I would have. I was a Girl Scout. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good thing to be sometimes. (laughs) I guess. (laughs) 
Yeah, the the thing about like arrogance as a clinician, that can be tough to overcome. And of course, doctors mm. are famous for being arrogant. Sometimes when I would do talks, you know, we get into a discussion about something that didn't do well in clinical research, and somebody would, you know, stop the entire talk and say, Well, it works in my patients, you know, and you could tell where that the discussion was going. And I'd say, Okay, it works in your patients. Does it work in all of them? Mm. Yes. Where do you work? I work in a rehab hospital. If they've had a brain injury, what day post do you usually see them? Usually about two to five days post. Does the rehab hospital accept any brain injured patient? No, they have to show that they have rehab potential to get through the door. It's a rehab hospital. They have to be able to do three hours a day. So without that, they can't do it. Mm. So the patients have been cherry picked. (laughs) They get them during the subacute phase when the brain is coming back online and the brain is full of BDNF. And then they discharge them when they plateau. So when the going gets tough, the tough get discharged, I guess. I guess. What, what they don't have and what would make that arrogance go away a little bit, and I think most good clinicians in rehab hospitals know this, is you would have a control group and that would even everything out. And then you would know whether or not something's actually working because everything is going to work. I mean, you could get their uncle Joe to get them up out of bed, get them in the kitchen. Come on, cook some of your sauce, you know, whatever it is, you know, keep them relatively safe and they would get better because the brain's coming back online. But we need to do better than Uncle Joe. And so that means, you know, being humble enough to go to the clinical research and big rehab hospitals usually have a group that gets together and discusses articles. So it's usually not a problem, but every once in a while you see that. Well, you know, that that is one way to be, but I would I would be curious to know what happened with these people when they were discharged to home because the rehab environment is very structured. And I know that a lot of people with brain injury, they kind of fall apart when they get home and the structure is gone. The support, you know, you have to look at the support that people have and are they getting back to their life or are they having a life, a meaningful life? I mean, are those questions being looked at? Because from the looks of things in that one group that I'm in, a lot of people are not functioning well. Among the people with acquired brain injury, Mm -hmm. they're getting back home and Back home, they have headaches. They can't get along with family members. They have brain fog. They can't hold down a job. That's tough. Yep. They're not sleeping well. We know that from mm-hmm. the last episode. Yep. They have a hard time being empathetic. Yep. Probably not taking care of themselves in a number of ways. Yeah. It's yeah. it's that's tough. All and and healthcare providers either don't believe them or they I don't know if they're even seeking help. Who knows? I just think a lot of people fall through the cracks after they're discharged. Yeah. May I ask, where are you on universal health care? Do you think this country should move towards universal health care or are you mixed about it? I think what we're doing isn't working. I, oh, we should, everybody deserves health care. That's yeah. what I think. I like the old joke, you know, universal health care. It's really, really hard to implement. Out of the 35 first world countries, only 34 have been able to do it. So it's, it's tough. It's tough out there. <laughs> tough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had to deal with the Finnish. You know, it works. In Finland, I got treated. They didn't ask for anything. 
Mm-hmm. They didn't even ask for a passport or an ID or anything. It just gets paid for. Well, it seems to me that people that I speak to here who are not for it, they use Canada as an example. And it seems like a lot of Canadians have to wait for a long time to get certain services or procedures that they need. You know, they have the ability in Canada to purchase supplemental insurance. Mm -hmm. So that if if there's a catastrophic injury or they get cancer or something, they're not hit with that bill. There's nothing worse than having cancer and having to deal with bills. So what they're talking about is it takes them longer to have elective surgery. Mm -hmm. And that's true. Mm -hmm. You can come to the United States and pay for it here. You get it done, I guess, right away. But that's not really the point. The point is like, what about the person with brain injury Mm-hmm. who is still having problems, but can't go back to the doctor because they're not covering more visits or whatever the problem is. Or the person who has a cough and won't go to the doctor and it turns into COVID. It's just this sort of mm-hmm. penny-wise, pound-foolish. I think the Germans have a good system. So it's it's private insurance across the board, but it's not for profit. Ah, because because that's it, when, right there. When you have to pay for the shareholders as well, and they're skimming off the top constantly, you got to keep them happy. And that means that's a 15, 20% premium on everything. People say, yeah, but if you got universal health care, they're going to take money and higher taxes. Yeah, but you got deductibles and you got premiums and you got out of network costs and you got the paperwork. It's just such a hassle. You're, you, you pay more than anybody in any industrialized nation, but you still get inferior quality stuff for the most part. Mm-hmm. So look, I, I think we should do it. I'm not holding my breath though. No, I don't think anybody should right now. Here's a fun fact. I used to work for a traumatic brain injury waiver program. I was an independent living skills trainer. And so one of the things that one of the case managers used to complain about was that people with brain injuries hoard equipment. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Sounds about right. You know, and I used to, I didn't care. Uh, It didn't bother me. I loved my people that I worked with. They were they were unique. They were a fun challenge and we had good relationships. But yes, one person had a couple wheelchairs, you know, but they would, um, they would help out their buddies who had brain injuries. And when I guess when you're given $2,000 a month or whatever they're given to live on, you just kind of start hoarding and gathering things that you think you might need someday. You if you can't know. get a new wheelchair for five years, maybe you hang on to some wheelchairs. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we don't need universal health care. We just need um, to all turn into pack rats. <laughs> maybe. So <we> <laughs> plenty of equipment to go around. <laughs> All right. You got anything else on how to make clinicians better clinicians and how to recognize good clinicians when you see them? Um, I think having some compassion, you know, for yourself, your colleagues, and your patients that you're working with, and be interested in the research and try to apply the research. Don't ignore it. Be a good listener. Yeah, be a good li- be a good listener and a good applier of concepts. Be involved in lifelong learning. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, though, you can keep learning but never apply what you learn. So that's not really that helpful. Hmm. Yeah, you can you're right. you know to know something and not use it. Yeah, implementation of stuff is is mm-hmm. important. Yeah. Well, anything else? Um, what do you think about personality? I, I don't have any. <laughs> 
I need some. Do you think it's important to let your personality out in the clinic? What was that movie with Robin Williams where he put on the clown mask and all that stuff? Where he got those people to wake up. Yeah. Patch Adams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he let it out. Didn't he get in trouble for it, though? I think he did. I haven't watched yeah. that movie in a long time. That'd be another one. If you want to be a good clinician, you could learn. But um, personality. What, Patch Adams? Yeah, yeah. I think your personality is going to come out no matter what. You know? Eventually. You know, I have half a mind. Did you hear this story? It was back in 2015. Um, this anesthesiologist and this doctor, the doctor was doing a colonoscopy and the anesthesiologist was there. And the patient wanted to remember what they had told him for instructions before they put him under. So he had clicked his uh, cell phone to record. And then he went under and he forgot that it was on and it recorded everything that happened in the operating room. And they just trashed this guy. They talked to the anesthesiologist really got into a lot of trouble and the guy won a half a million dollar lawsuit. But she said things like, after five minutes of talking to you in pre-op, I wanted to punch you in the face and man you up a little bit. And it went on and on and on like this. She said that he doesn't have hemorrhoids, but I'm going to put on the chart that he does just to give him something to think about. I'm wondering if in this episode, it might be a good idea to just let that play for a little while with all the insults. It's online. It's You can find it everywhere. Um, how would you feel about that? Do you want to listen to it first? Well, I want to say yes. Just let it. I think that it's a good idea. Talking to you in pre-op, I wanted to punch you in the face and man you up a little bit. So just make sure you're down the syphilis on your arm or something. It's probably tuberculosis in the penis, so you're gonna be alright. Just get a PPD in like a month. And then you'll take some INH and be fine. Well, why are you looking then, retard? I said, turn your head. Why are you looking? They want to believe what they want to believe. These people are into their medical problems. You need to have a medical problem. I'm around go, wheel of annoying patients that go. <laughs> Where to land, nobody knows. I feel bad, I shouldn't be so mean. I'm gonna mark hemorrhoids, even though we don't see them, I probably won't. I'm just gonna take a shot in the dark. I'll tell you, Pete, I have sat in documentation rooms and listened to that kind of talk. And I just, that that's really why I'm happy not to be at the hospital anymore, because it just, it just got to me too much because we are all those people, Yeah, you know, it could be any one of us any day. And who is, who is some healthcare worker to trash another human like that? Yeah. And it wasn't even gallows humor. This guy wasn't mm-hmm. on his way out or it wasn't something to keep herself sane. She was just kind of hmm. not being nice. Do we have um, do we have something that sounds better to play too, so people get a taste of both? <laughs> oh, I see. Of a of a, yeah. Of the know. kindness. Patch Adams. There yeah. You go. So I want to do what I did with the smaller group earlier this week and read you my favorite letter because I think the thing that that pushes me in everything, my why, my purpose are embedded in the idea of service in care to others, meaning all of those, to self, to family, community, the society. And if you're not clearly in touch with just how unbelievable it feels to care for others, my favorite letter of several hundred thousand will hint.
at it. January 10th, 2001. Hi, my name is Jesse Meeker. I am 12 years old. Because you got this today, it means that I have died. That is okay, though. I hope you're that cool when you die. She died three days after this letter was written. I got real sick about a year ago, and I need a liver transplant. I am living in an apartment with my mom in Tacoma, Washington. My dad left us a long time ago because he had problems. Feel the forgiveness on her deathbed for her father. And if you know anything about liver failure, three days before you die of it, you're usually not too clear. Mom moved us up here to be with my Uncle Bob. He works up here. My grandma lives in Canada, and Mom is going to take me back there. We're kind of poor and don't know anybody up here. I was real lonely until I met this crazy guy named Mr. Pete. Mr. Pete was pretty scary when I first met him. He came to the apartments to fix a hole we had. He is a painter here at the apartments. He was real quiet and a big man. I was in bed and Mr. Pete came through my room to do the job. On his way out, I said hi to him and we started to talk. He asked me why I was home and I said I was sick and then I told him I was real sick. It didn't seem to matter to him like other adults. He asked acted like it was normal for people to maybe die. He held my hand and asked if he could come back if mom said it was all right. He talked to mom and said it was all right, so Mr. Pete started to come by sometimes. Mr. Pete is my angel, Dr. Adams. He spends lots of time with me and taught me how to use Uncle Bob's computer. He has helped me to write letters to people and to write poetry and stuff. He showed me how to use spell checker and grammar checker. This letter looks pretty good. We talk and talk and talk all the time. He stays with me when I want to cry so mom could have a break. This is real hard for mom. Mr. Pete writes stuff too, stuff about living and friends and stuff. He's also a very smart man. He has been to a lot of schools. You can just tell. He knows a lot about sickness and getting well. He said he was a suit once, but had to give it up. He worked with families that were having real big troubles like alcohol and drugs and stuff. He said he became a painter here to have a break with, from that life. I think it was hard to him because he is such a great man and nobody knows it. I saw your movie with Robin Williams. It was funny and sad. I'm sorry you lost your girlfriend. That part made me cry. Mr. Pete told me the one thing I might want to do is write letters to people out there in the world that I thought were neat. He said that in that way I could know that important things were told to important people and that it is important to let people know when they touch you in a good way. I am writing to you and Oprah Winfrey and Rosie O'Donnell and Mr. Rogers and Kermit the Frog. I know he is a puppet, but he is so much fun. What I'm telling everyone is about Mr. Pete. The best part is he doesn't know it. That is the important thing because he said he would mail all of the letters after I am gone if I go. And he's mailing all these letters about himself and he doesn't know. Ha ha. He thinks I'm writing fan letters. I think I'm pretty smart for being a kid. Mr. Pete says I'm a smarty pants kid, and that's about the same thing. I know that you are very busy and might not be able to do this favor for me, and that is all right. I think you would be doing yourself a favor if you called Mr. Pete and met him. I know that you will like him and tell him that I told you to call. That would probably make him faint. You should think about giving him a job. He is smart and loves kids. He is my 
angel and had time for me. He makes everyone around laugh till they cry. His are good laughs. Think about it for a while. Information. Mr. Pete thinks you are a swell guy. He says that certain souls are family and that you are a certain soul. Thank you for reading this. Be happy for me. Your friend, Jessie, she died before I got the letter. And what am I saying, really? I'm really saying that that's what you get when you care for another. You get that, that, Jessie, she's yours. That on her deathbed, with not even, you know, she had to stay at home. She was poor. She had to stay at home and die while her mother was going to work because of our health care system. And before she died, she wasn't worried about anything. She wanted to make sure somebody cared for this janitor that took care of her. Of course, I called him. <laughs> We're still friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.